0: Hey, and welcome to Episode 8 of the MTG Collection Builder Podcast. I'm Brian, the lead and only developer of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, and in this podcast we're going to be covering a wide variety of topics relevant to Magic Collectors, including new product announcements, fannings, the card of the week, and the topic of the week, which this week are pre-releases and their promos over time. There's a lot of interesting history there. If you haven't heard of MTGCollectionBuilder.com, it's a website where you can track your Magic Collection and how much it's worth, You get cool little progress bars as to how far you are towards completing a specific set. You get buttons to quickly buy cards that you're missing. It's pretty cool. You can check it out at mtgcollectionbuilder.com. It's completely free to use. It's seen a lot of improvements recently thanks to my patrons over at Patreon. If you haven't heard of Patreon, it's a way where you can support content creators, either creators of websites or podcasts or both, like me. If you want to support the website directly, you can head on over to patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder and get access to perks like ad removal for your account and much more. Feel free to check it out. We also do a quarterly giveaway, which patrons are automatically entered into. But any, any listeners of the podcast or, the, or users of the website can enter as well. Just go to patreon.com and leave a comment in the thread that I'll post near the end of September about the giveaway, and you'll be entered automatically. And now let's move on to the news. The first item of the news is that Wizards has revealed more details about the Commander Legends set. To recap, it's a set that's actually going to be a draftable set for Commander, so you'll be able to draft a Commander deck, which is super cool. It's going to be 20-card booster packs, and they've revealed that, like most drafts, you're going to start with three booster packs. But you're going to pick two cards instead of one out of the 20-card pack, which makes sense, because otherwise the draft would be way too slow. Mechanically, there are going to be two dedicated legendary slots in each pack. And at the end of the draft, you'll be building a 60-card deck, not a 40-card deck, to kind of simulate how Commander decks are 100 cards versus standard 60 cards. But unlike regular Commander, you can actually play more than a single copy of a card. They're not going to enforce the Singleton rule. At the end of that, you'll then pick your commander. Now, even with two dedicated legendary slots, you might be worried that it would be difficult to draft a two-color archetype like you would in most drafts, but they thought about this. They created 41 new mono partner commanders to help with drafting. That way, you wouldn't have to commit to a gold commander in advance and then stick to those colors. If you don't know, the partner keyword allows you to have two cards as your commander combined, because they're partners thematically. They also clarified that collector boosters would be the only way to get extended art cards. But now the Commons and Uncommons will also be featured in the Collector Boosters as extended art, as well as rares and mythics. Additionally, all 71 Legends in this set have an alternate version that's possible to get, I think like Showcase version. It's in a special frame, and it uses a new foiling process they came up with that they call Foil Etched. There's a video of it on YouTube, it's pretty cool, I'll include that in the show notes. They also added in 32 popular legendary creatures from Commander Past. In addition to the 71 Legends, while they're not strictly part of the set, they have a small chance of appearing in a booster pack. There's a small chance of getting these in regular draft booster packs, but you're guaranteed to get at least one of the 71 Legends in every collector booster, from what I understand. One last tidbit that they left us with is they announced enemy crowdlands. The allied ones that first appeared in Battlebond, and these are lands where I read uh, Rejuvenating Springs. It's a land that taps for either green or blue, and it enters the battlefield tapped unless you have two or more opponents. So there's a whole cycle of these lands with the enemy mana colors, and it's pretty cool for multiplayer formats because it's a very effective dual land. And if you buy a box at your local game store, you, the buy a box promo is Mana Confluence, which is a $20 card. It's pretty nice. Next on the news, also related to Commander, is that Commander Collection Green's contents have been revealed. Again, this is an 8-card set, similar of the Signature Spellbooks, which is being released on December 4th. There's a foil and non foil version. You can only buy these from WPN stores. That would be your local game stores that are WPN stores. And the cards are Bane of Progress, Command Tower, Freyelis, Llanowar's Fury, Amenath, Locus of Mana, Seedborne Muse, Sol Ring, Sylvan Library, and Worldly Tutor. Now, before this list came out, people were theorizing that the MSRP for these would be about $20, like similar products in the past. But that's $150 worth of cards I just read to you. Like Bane of Progress and Frey Lease alone exceed like $20 easily. Omnath by itself is $25. So given the limited allocation that we think stores are gonna get, some may get as few as 10 copies of these, we're very likely to see price gouging. So keep your eyes out for this set, um, preferably from a game store that isn't prone to price gouge. I find like game stores in malls, things like that. They don't tend to be on top of the actual value of the cards within box sets. So they'll just sell them at MSRP as intended. Uh, That's what I would seek out. The next news item is that on August 24th, 2020, Wizards of the Coast banned Field of the Dead in Historic. Interestingly, this hasn't seemed to affect the price of the card much that I can see. Um, I see that the price is still going up, and it's at $13 right now. Maybe it's just going to lag before it responds, but yeah, it's effectively banned in Historic as of August 24th. And that's the only banning they announced on that day. And last on the news are that two new secret layers have come and gone. The first one was Prime Slime, which was released for sale on August 19th for $29.99, and it had oozes in an alternate art children's book style. They look pretty good. Uh, These include Necrotic Ooze, Acidic Slime, Scavenging Ooze, The Myoplasm, and Void Slime. The second secret layer that they released was Every Dog Has Its Day on August 26th. This one, interestingly, is $29.99 for a non-foil version, and then they offer a foil version for $39.99. It's a little more expensive. It's alternate art, actually based on the dogs belonging to Wizards employees, which is kind of cute. It has dogs doing dog things like chewing slippers or digging holes in the ground. The featured cards are Rest in Peace, Dig Through Time, Ancient Grudge, and Lightning Graves. And that's all for the news, so let's move on to the card of the week, which I suppose is the card of this week, and that is Suture Priest. Suture Priest is 1 and a white for a creature cleric. It has 1 power and 1 toughness, so it's a 1-1. And it reads, whenever another creature enters a battlefield under your control, you may gain 1 life. And whenever a creature enters a battlefield under an opponent's control, you may have that player lose 1 life. A pretty cool little card. I can definitely see how I see some play in some decks. And it was given out at the Meriden Besieged game day, if you made your deck affiliated with the Phyraxian faction. You'd do this by having at least 10 cards with the Phyraxian watermark in your deck, and then you could qualify for that. So what makes this card notable? It, it's notable because... Similar to that how some dual decks have done, it's, it was actually an early preview for a future set, um, a set called New Phyrexia. And at this point in time, you actually didn't know if the future set was going to be New Phyrexia or Mirrodin Pure. It depended on which faction won this conflict, which was pretty cool. But what kind of sucked is that this card was physically indistinguishable from a future priest pulled out of a New Phyrexia booster pack. There's no foil stamp, there's no promo text, there's no special set symbol it is physically the same as a common Suture Priest from a Nufraxia booster pack. So kind of dropped the ball on this one, in my opinion. Um, it's an interesting collector's item because you actually can't tell if you have one from the game day or from a booster pack. There is no difference. Um, it's still worth a dollar today, which I think, I think just shows that it's a good card. Interestingly, the alternative card, if you went for the Mirin faction, was Pristine Talisman. And this one is physically distinguishable because it has a set symbol for and Pure a set that never came to be. So if you want a card that has a set symbol for a set that doesn't exist, you can pick that up, it's $7. Interestingly, just a side note, I actually had to correct and do a massive migration script on my MTGCB website when I noticed this, because I had Switcher priest as both coming out of a booster pack and coming out of game day. And this was causing quite a bit of confusion because people under reading the card, they couldn't tell which one it came from. So I had to take all the entries from game day and migrate them over to the booster pack version. And that, that was a fun night. Thanks, Wizards. And that's the card of the week, Suture Priest. Now we're going to move on to the main topic, which are pre-release cards. So just a level set, a pre-release today is a special event that you can go to, usually a week before the official release of a set, where you get your first chance to play with that set early in formats like Sealed, where you build a deck out of six booster packs, or two-headed giant. It's usually low stakes, very casual and fun, and hosted by your local game store. And you also get a promotional card for participating, which is the topic of this podcast. Now, pre-releases and how their promos work have really evolved quite a bit since their early roots. So we're going to go ahead and cover the history of pre-releases and how this affected promos over time and other collectibles. Wizards kind of figured it out as they went along, and there are some good lessons to be learned along the way. So let's get started. So the year is 1994, and Magic has been doing so well flying off the shelves that the company is more focused on improving their printing infrastructure than really anything else. But they decided it was time to start improving their marketing methods, so they had their first kind of pre-release style event in Toronto. It was unofficial, but it was felt like quite a spectacle. Ice Age boxes were escorted by guards, they were locked up and everything, and it was the public's first chance to play with the set. Some notable players include Mark Rosewater himself, who was covering the event for the Duelist magazine at the time from the perspective of a player. He did so well in the tournament, he made day two, but they asked him to step down, so they let uh, the 33rd place person into day two because it, it didn't feel right that the Wizards flew him out for the event and then he did well and he could maybe even win it. Uh, So it was very successful, and this was the only pre-release they had worldwide, so it wasn't like they had multiple locations, and there were no promo cards yet. It was just kind of a spur-of-the-moment, let's advertise this game, let's have a good time. It was so popular that they decided to plan their first official pre-release, which they called The Gathering One, as in the number one, in New York City. They rented out two floors of the New Yorker Hotel. They decorated parts of it with a really fancy fantasy theme with each color magic, they flew in Richard Garfield and a bunch of artists to do signings. It was pretty awesome. Now, the feature set was Homelands, which wasn't as awesome, but the event still did really well overall. And again, just like the world's second pre-release, there's only one location, it's only happening once, so you either have to drive all the way there or live there already. And they went on to have other similar events, sometimes hosted on places like the Queen Mary. And eventually they started branching out, doing more than one event at a time, like East Coast and West Coast, or East Coast, West Coast and Canada. And then they handed off responsibility for running multiple pre-releases to a bunch of premium event organizers. There were four big ones at the time, including gray matter conventions. These are similar to PTQs in attendance where you would have hundreds and hundreds of people, some of whom drove very far in order to go to these. And it was more for hardcore magic fans, right? It wasn't as casual friendly, but they started to increase the number of pre-releases more and more and more to where you actually had a couple dozen going on. So they're easier to get to, but not as ubiquitous as they are today. Around this time in 1997, the first pre-release promo ever came out for a Tempest pre-release called Dirk Cowl Worm. This was four in a green for a Dirk Cowl Worm, a creature worm at rare. It had three power and four toughness, and it reads, Whenever an opponent plays a land, put a plus one plus one counter on Dirk Cowl Worm. And it features a gold pre-release stamp with the magic symbol in gold. On the type line, a little miscentered, at least on the card that I'm looking at. So that's kind of funny. I think it adds to the charm. Back then, and for a very long time, you couldn't actually play with a pre-release promo in your deck. It was just a commemorative prize. Something to keep in mind that would we'll change later. And interestingly, even though this is the first pre-release promo ever, it's only $4. So super cheap if you want to collect one. Worth noting, too, it's kind of a generic random card from the set. It doesn't highlight any mechanics from Tempest or anything like that. And it's just a worm, which is kind of dragon-like. And that's cool and all, but it is generic. And the first few pre-release promos were like this. In fact, the next two in 1988 for Stronghold and Exodus, they're exactly the same except that the pre-release stamp stated the month and the year instead of the same pre-release magic symbol. But this is something they would go back and forth on for a while. Then for Urza Saga, you got Lightning Dragon as a promo, which is two red red for a creature dragon with flying and echo. And you can pay red to give Lightning Dragon plus one plus one until end of turn. It's a four four and it's illustrated by Ron Spencer. And this one's notable for three reasons first it was the first foil pre-release card and in fact most future promos would move on to be foil it was the first pre-release card with a shooting star in the bottom left corner which is just cool and it was the first pre-release card to actually highlight a set's theme or mechanics in this case echo from urza saga the art in this one is pretty awesome and with the foiling and the fact that it's the first foil promo it goes for 30 a day which seems about right so promo continued to follow the pattern set by lightning dragon until the year 2000 For the most part, Uh, Lubu, Master of Arms, was a little exception, where in Portal Three Kingdoms, he was different in Japan than in Australia and Singapore because the pre-releases were on different dates, so the stamp was different. But other than that, until the year 2000, all pre-release promos were a foil. Uh, But then they started getting really experimental with them. For Invasion, they printed Cavu Furens," which is actually Raging Cavu in Latin. All the text on the card was in Latin, not just the title, which is pretty unique. It's not like we make magic products in Latin. Uh, we're, We're not playing in the Roman Empire over here. Then in 2001, for Plain Shift, they released O planomenos Feldagrifos, which is, I think, how you pronounce Questine Feldagrif in classical Greek. And then later in the year, they printed Fungal Samblar, which is Fungal shambler in Sanskrit. I'm sure my pronunciation is awful. That's for the set Apocalypse. And then after that, they printed Basol Laisak Al Hajar Walisan, which is Stone Tongue Basilisk in Arabic from the set Odyssey. And then in 2002, they printed Voyn Lak Vatusa lak vatusa, which is Laquitus' champion in Russian. And for any native speakers, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce these. And then finally, uh, they printed Tehila, which was glory in Hebrew for the Set Judgment. And this was also the last pre-release card they did with the Shooting Star and the end of their alternate language experiment, which I think is super cool. But I know some players like me, I would it might look cool, but I don't know if I actually want to play a Japanese card in a draft like It would suck to have to explain to the opponent what the card does, or have an English copy nearby, I I don't know, it's a bit much. Even full art cards are a little questionable, but at least they use up all the card for the art, which I think is worth it. But these are really cool collector's items, right? Like, you can own the only Magic card in Latin today, that's awesome. Following this experiment in Onslaught, you began to see cards like Silent Spectre pre-releases have the expansion symbol as a watermark in the text region of the card. So that was a new pattern they started following with. And a few sets after that in 2003, Sort of Chaldra from Meriden was the first pre release card to feature alternate art. And in fact, all subsequent pre release cards would have alternate art, and they would also have the date stamp moved from the pipeline, where it was never quite aligned properly, into the art frame instead. This was also the first pre release card that wasn't a creature. The way wizards thought about it, they figured that creatures have more battlefield presence and are more likely to stay on the battlefield than an instant or a sorcery. Although Sort of Chaldra is an equipment, so it's kind of it's not that much of a sacrifice. But here they start experimenting more with like, okay, let's print some non-creatures to make it interesting. And in fact, this was very interesting because Sword of Cauldra was actually a series of three connected pre-release promos. In the following year, Shield of Cauldra from Darksteel was the first pre-release card to mention an unreleased card in its rules text. Shield of Cauldra is four mana for a legendary artifact equipment. And it reads, equipment named Sword of Cauldre, Shield of Cauldra, and Helm of Cauldra are indestructible. The Equipped Creature has Indestructible, and Equip cost is 4. So right here, that immediately made you wonder, like, holy cow, I've seen Sword of Cauldre. I've seen Shield of Caldra what does Helm of do? These cards are super cool. That was a really good strategy to do this, and I'm glad they did it. I think if they did it a lot, it would kind of kill the excitement, but once in a Blue Moon, it's like, yeah, it gets you hyped for what the next card might be, especially if it's part of a three-card combo. Many many sets later, about four years later in fact, in Shards of Alara, a Johnny Vengeant was the first pre-release Mythic Rare and the first Planeswalker ever to be a pre-release promo. It was also used as a release card promo as well, so this kind of blurs the lines. It was both a pre-release promo and a release promo. More importantly, however, starting with Shards of Alara, about 14 years after the first pre-release, Wizards changed them to instead of being these big PTQ-like events hosted by four companies that kind of had a monopoly on this, to being hosted at your game store um, worldwide. And of course, this made pre-releases way more casual and smaller, but just the first year alone, the number of attendees doubled. And the next year, I believe it quadrupled. So this is something I really take for granted as a new new age player who started around 2012, lured into the game by the dual, or the planeswalker PC game series. And I played a little bit in middle school. And uh, yeah, it's awesome that we now have pre-releases that everyone can attend. And uh, it's not all upside though. They, this did put more pressure on local game stores to host and organize the events especially with some of the event experiences they designed, which we'll talk about later. So after that, in Zendikar in 2009, this was the first time they gave out two promos at once. They gave out Rampaging Baloth and the first Plane card from Plane Chase called uh, Celestine Reef. they were both pre-release promos. They wouldn't give out two promos again until 2011 in Meriden Besiege, where you got Glissa the Traitor and Hero Bladehold, which highlighted both the Phyrexian and Mera Infections. And then starting with Return to Ravnica, we kind of saw the advent of pre-release cards that were playable on your deck for the first time. Because up until this point, uh, the pre-release cards were both fixed and not allowed to be in your deck. But now when you went to a pre-release, you'd actually choose a pre-release kit that aligned with the guild that you liked. So maybe you like it or Golgari. So you go ahead and you pick your favorite guild, you open up your guild pack, and there's a guild booster there. So it's an it booster pack or a Golgari booster pack. And in this booster, you'd have a bunch of cards that are kind of aligned toward your guild colors. And then you have a pre-release promo. And then each guild had one unique pre-release promo that you could play in your deck. Now, of course, sometimes the rest of your packs wouldn't align with that guild, so you'd have to abandon it, but pretty often you'd actually be able to play a guild corresponding to the pack that you picked, which is pretty cool. So they continued this pattern moving forward for a lot of sets where you would have a pre-release kit of some sort that you could pick, and you would have one one pre-release card in that kit that corresponded to a color or a theme, and you were allowed to play with it. Later in 2013, we saw two promos pop up again in Maze's End and a Plains for the set Dragon's Maze, kind of highlighting the, the whole maze storyline they had going on. Uh, we haven't seen two promos since, uh, and notably, these were not playable in your deck. Now, from Gatecrash to Magic 2015, pre-release promos worked, where you bought a kit of a specific color, and it, you got a specific promo that you could play. It started to cause balance issues, where people would find out, oh man, if you want to win, uh, get get the white pack, the other ones are garbage, and then the white packs would sell out at your game store on pre-release night, and you'd be forced to play Demir or whatever it was, like the weakest the weakest option. So what Wizards did, starting with attack here in 2014, they changed pre-release packs to... You still do the same thing, like you, you would pick your favorite clan and cons of Tarkir, but instead of one guaranteed pre-release promo, it was uh, out of a pool of eight promos per pack. So if I got the Jeskai Cards of Tarkir pack, then it would have one out of eight possible cards for the clan Jeskai. That, that's how it worked. This kind of washed away any variance because even if one card were more powerful than the others, you only had a one out of eight chance of getting it. So it was random and fun in a good way. But this put a strain on collectors of pre-release promos, right? Because now instead of one or two pre-release promos per set, you would have eight per color. So that's 40 new promos per set, which made it really hard to collect. It wasn't impossible, but once we got to Battle for Zendikar, that's when collecting pre-release cards really got impossible. In order to simplify pre-release kits, they decided, okay, instead of you picking a color or a guild, everyone gets the same pre-release kit. But what do we do about the pre-release promos? Well, they, they changed them so any rare or mythic from the set could now be a pre-release promo. So you would get one of those uh, stamped with the date of the pre-release. And it's good because it's easier for game stores, they wouldn't run out of specific colors or anything like that. But collecting pre-release promos is now basically impossible. Each set adds at least 70 new pre-release cards, sometimes more, they throw in more than just the rares and mythics sometimes. So if you're a collector interested in collecting pre-release promos, I recommend doing so up until Magic 15 at latest. From Cons onward, there are just too many of them. I, I would collect the older ones back from the day when you would just get one or two per set, and that kind of catches us up in history to where we are today. But it's worth noting that cards aren't the only collectible items from pre-releases. So spin-down dice, if you haven't heard of them, are 20-sided dice, also known as D20s, that are in order, so you can go from one to two, three to four just by rotating the dice slightly. And they've been around for a long time in magic, mostly coming out of fat packs as a way to to track your life total. Um, and this was before the age of smartphones and smart apps that could do this for you. And they have the downside where you can like knock them off the table and forget your life total, but they're still a, a cool part of magic, especially from the old days. The number 20 often will have a set symbol in it and the dice will often come in the five colors of mana or sometimes colors that relate to the guilds that they come from. And starting with Return to Ravnica, they began appearing in pre-release cuts. So they would feature colors corresponding to each guild, and and the set symbol was the number 20, as I mentioned before. And they were cool. Uh, If you attended multiple pre-releases, it was pretty easy to collect all five. And there's a wonderful website called Dice Collector that documents every spindown die ever released from Wizards, including where they come from and how to get them. I'd like to add these to MDGCB someday, but it's definitely outside of the scope of collecting cards and tokens. And I would like to secure a good price source for these, but super cool, I'll leave that link in the show notes for you guys. In addition to collecting Spindle dice, Wizards created a lot of other artifacts that are actually collectible for pre-releases as they experimented what they called pre-release experiences, which are how they created side events and other things you could do at a pre-release other than play magic. In the Hero's Path player event, for example, which spanned the entire Theros block, starting with the first pre-release, you, could, you would collect hero cards, which are these special cards that you could not normally play in a deck. But you can use them in subsequent special events, including facing the Face the Hydra deck, which itself can be collected, or ultimately building up and crafting a custom God Slayer, which you could use to defeat a god in the Defeat a God Challenge, which is also its own deck. There are also other collectibles you could face, like an oversized card you could battle as part of the pre-release. There are little buildable Ornithopters in some of the kits you could build, welcome ladders from Ravnica guilds, which are kind of fun to collect. And one of the events even featured a dexterity game of knocking down tokens with a die. Uh, Those tokens were not collectible as far as I know, unless you took them out of the dumpster after the event or something. But ultimately, um, these little side events, while they created cool collectible experiences, they had really low turnout, participation was low, and they overburdened game stores who already had a hard enough time, just running events in general, kind of understaffed. So Wizards got a lot of feedback and they stopped creating these side experiences. So these collectibles have kind of disappeared too. But something to keep in mind, uh, the Heroes Path cards are particularly cool. I will check those out. And that about wraps things up. So to summarize, pre-releases are now in your local game store where before they used to be like singular events worldwide. Any rare or mythic in a set can be a pre-release promo and that's primarily where pre-release promos come from nowadays. They're impossible to collect, so I would just focus on collecting the original promos or maybe like a sub goal, I like collect every promo dragon or something like that. Date stamping is ultimately a neat way to bling out your deck, and I think it's a nice memento too for like having to attend the pre-release. It's kind of like having a Kodak moment, like taking a, a selfie with the cards in the background, but instead it's, it's the card itself. It's, it's proof that you were there. And I'll never forget my first pre-release. I still have the promo card for it. It was Dark Ascension. I was brand new to Magic having come to the pre-release because Duels of the Planeswalker convinced me to, and I came by myself, and I was still working through some social anxiety. I went 0-10. People were super rude to me and I loved every minute of it. I've been playing Magic ever since. They continue to give out spindle dice too, so if you want to keep collecting those, that's totally doable. But other collectibles are no longer a thing. And pre-releases are super fun. Um, most people don't over-prepare for them, so it's kind of a level playing field. The fact that it's sealed means you don't have the drafting stress if you're new to drafting. It's a great way of bringing new players into the game, although it certainly help them build their deck for the first time. And even though we're during a, a quarantine right now with COVID-19, at least in the United States, you can buy some pre release kits from your local game store, get them delivered in some cases, and you can play them at home with your family. Um, it's, it's totally, you can still have a pre release at home and have a pretty good time, because you don't need that many matches to make it worth your while. And that's just going to about do it for this episode. So I wanted to thank you for joining me for this episode of the MTG Collection Builder podcast. If you have any suggestions for the podcast or the website, feel free to reach out to me via email, brian at mtgcb.com, via Facebook, where I'm mtg Collection Builder, or Twitter, where I'm at mtgcb. I currently don't post a thing, but I probably will someday. If you want to support the website or the podcast, feel free to head over to patreon.com slash mtgcollectionbuilder. You can check out all the pledge levels uh, depending on where you are. You can get ad removed for your account, a postcard sent to you in the mail, all sorts of cool stuff. And thanks again to all my patrons. Like, I just got a, a compliment today. Like, oh, wow, like these prices are way better. And they are because I, with the funds from Patreon, I was able to build my own price service running on its own server and database. And I've I fixed like 800 missing prices from TCG player by being able to integrate with the new API. So yeah, Patreon has been super helpful that on the image database. So feel free to contribute if you're interested. No pressure, of course. And thanks again for joining me and I'll see you guys next time. Hey, we've made it to another secret segment of the podcast where I talk about any topic I want. So I wanna talk about collecting and not just collecting magic. It's it's really not limited to magic collecting. Um, it, and collecting is awesome because it kind of t- ties together the concepts of organization, set completion, and the ability to use whatever it is you're collecting in many cases. I don't know about stamp collecting maybe, but uh, with many things you collect, you can definitely use them. Uh, as an example, I love the Planescape campaign setting from Dungeons and & Dragons, and I love it so much that I managed to collect every second edition Planescape book that was ever made, and I'm telling you, it's awesome. They all fit on just one rack on my bookshelf. But there's so much lore in these books that you can really spend a lifetime pouring through it all, designing campaigns for them. Like it's super cool. Like they put a lot of love into a full-size colored maps of Sigil, the City of Doors, and TSR put out a really good, a lot of really good stuff in the '90s. I also really love board games, and during this pandemic, I think that they're a great way to pass the time. If you're burned out on video games, or if you just want to break from Magic Arena, which I've been grinding quite a bit too. If you haven't heard, by the way, modern board games are really amazing. We kind of had a lot of crappy ones nationally, like things like Monopoly and stuff. No offense, no offense, I'm not gatekeeping board games, but you know, games that were kind of more like random chance roll and move games. And we imported good ones from Germany starting with like the famous Settlers of Catan. And this led to what is an absolute golden age of board games. Um, I think I own 247 board games now in my game room as my collection. And I've learned a lot about what makes a good board game. So what I wanted to do today is to recommend what I think are some great starter board games for you. If you've been curious about the hobby or you want to learn more, and I'm telling you, There's a board Mm -hmm. game for everyone. There's so many themes and play styles, it's kind of ridiculous. So if you want a a light dungeon crawling game, I would recommend Clank with an exclamation mark at the end. It's a game where you and up to, I think, four other players with expansions, maybe more, you go through a dungeon where there's a dragon and you're just trying to steal as much loot as you can and get out alive before the dragon kills you, right? So the dragon might kill some of your friends while you're down there. You kind of like pushing your luck, like seeing how greedy you can get with how much you can steal before the dragon finds you and and turns you into a pile of ashes. Super fun, it's a great first board game for a lot of people, I, I highly recommend it. The next one if you want something a little meatier would be what I call a medium weight dungeon crawling game and that would be Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion which is a baby version of Gloomhaven. And I think it's a great starting point because it came out recently, they learned a lot of lessons from their design and basically it's really tactical combat through a series of quests where you level up your character, you get loot, you unlock new things, you unlock secret things, which is super cool. And it's literally the number one rated board game of all time on BoardGameGeek, which is a great resource as well. If you wanted something a little less dungeony and a little more light, I would recommend a light worker placement game like Lords of Waterdeep. So worker placement is a game where you all take turns placing a worker and you're usually collecting resources or spending them. And you're trying to do it more efficiently than your opponents while kind of like getting in their way, right? If If you know they really need a certain resource, you'll take it before they do. So it's not direct conflict necessarily, although some of that is featured in Lords of Waterdeep. Thematically, you're lords of the town of Waterdeep, which is a town in the Forgotten Realms Dungeons and Dragons setting, and you're going to taverns and recruiting adventurers to complete quests to earn victory points, and whoever completes the most quests and gets the most victory points at the end of the game wins. It's super cool. Another great first introduction to a board game. If you wanted something a little meatier than that, then I would go with what I call a medium weight area control game, Scythe. And this one is a perennial in my collection. I feel like it's not perfect, but it hits a lot of notes in board gaming really well. You basically are a bunch of factions in post war Eastern Europa with like, it's had in like the 1920s, but you have giant mechs in the background of all the art and you're battling each other with giant mechs while optimizing your economy. It's super cool. And then if you wanted something super light, maybe for a family with children, I would recommend Codenames, which is really a perfect early board game for a family because it's like a word guessing game where you have two teams and you try to give clues and the, your team has to guess the words. But if they guess the wrong words, then the other team will get points or sometimes you just lose. And this one's awesome because it scales to an infinite number of players and you can literally have people join in the middle and they don't really miss out on anything. It's, it's really good for a party. So that's Codenames. And Again, I just want to underscore, there's so many themes and games to explore. Like, if you like Star Wars, there's like a bunch of Star Wars games where you can battle each other with ships or be like Star Wars characters going through dungeons and adventures. There's, if you want a game about running a vineyard, there's a really good one from Stonemeyer Games called Viticulture. It just It's an awesome hobby. And, and once you get in, I apologize in advance because your bank account's going to go down a couple thousand for sure, um, especially if you get on Kickstarter. Some of those Kickstarters are super expensive. So I'll have a link in the show notes for my collection and a little panorama in my game room just to show off the collection. And uh, worth noting too, that there are some good digital adaptations of these games, including Scythe as a great digital adaptation. There's another board game called Terraforming Mars, which is pretty awesome too. I can literally chat about board games for hours, so I'm gonna stop it here. But yeah, if you're at all interested, especially during these times where we're kind of restricted to being indoors, there are a lot of really good board games with great learn-to-play videos on YouTube. And I think it's a great thing to check out if you're interested. My favorite board game is probably Lisboa by Vital Lacerda. He's a Portuguese designer that does really good work, but it's a super advanced, heavy game. Like It'll break your head. You don't want to touch it unless you've been playing board games for a while. But once you're there, I highly recommend it. He's an awesome designer. Thanks, and have a good one.